This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 154, The Spires of Moscow. To the north of Stalin's latest defensive line before Moscow, Army Group North was dealing with the Russian November weather as best they could, while keeping Leningrad surrounded, and they were about to deal with a lot more. As it was clear the Germans were gambling everything on taking Moscow, Stalin ordered a massive counterattack to hit Army Group North's most eastern advance at Tikvin, some 35 miles or 56 kilometers southeast of Lake Ladoga, and then to just keep driving west. The ultimate goal for the attacking Soviet forces' immediate future was to reopen a direct land route to Leningrad, just below the large lake, and destroy the German forces in that area, helping to surround the city. Leningrad would be resupplied. It would not fall. Yet, this was a gamble for the Soviet premier. He could have used those very same forces to approach Tikvin and then turn south to get in behind the Germans who were threatening his capital. But Stalin, for better or worse, was not willing to lose the city of Leningrad, if for no other reason, to the north of it was where the Allied goods were making their way into Soviet Russia. Of course, this meant risking the capital, but by November, the bet had been placed. The Russian counterattack to the north started on November 19th. The Soviet forces before Moscow would just have to hold out on their own. To the far south, by November 22nd, and yes, we will go back and cover the exploits of Army Group North and Army Group South in the future, Army Group South had penetrated the Crimea and had reached and taken the city of Rostov-on-Don, which is just east of the northeastern corner of the Sea of Azov. This penetration was indeed an impressive accomplishment, but now the Germans were there dealing with the Russian winter and about to face another Stalin-ordered counterattack. Von Kleist, in charge of the forces now in Rostov-on-Don, wanted to abandon the city. 
It had cost him much to get here. Too much. If the Russians counterattacked, and they had been doing so ever since early July, von Kleist knew he did not have the manpower in the area to forestall this. But word did not come, would not come, from Berlin to pull back. Only Hitler could give the word, and, as will be seen later, that was the farthest thing from his mind. Army Group Center It certainly no longer mattered that when the Germans were coming through Western Russia, they allowed and even encouraged the people, now under their sway, to reopen their churches. Any goodwill that had been generated was quickly destroyed, as suspected partisans were shot outright, and anything worth taking was. To back up a bit, Guderian in the south was as feisty as ever. He had driven further than the other panzer groups, and though farther away from Moscow, had caused the Stavka a fair share of headaches. And now his lead forces were closing in on Tula, Guderian's objective, that, once achieved, would allow him to turn to the northeast and help enclose Moscow. By 3 p.m. of October 20th, the 6th Panzer Regiment of the 3rd Panzer Division was just 5 kilometers from Tula, yet the aggressors were cautious. The desperate Russians were known to hide themselves, as they could not stand up to the Germans most times. They would allow the attackers to come level or go a bit ahead of them and then hit them in their flanks, as Zhukov had stressed to them. German panzers were impressive, but their side armor was not as thick as the front. This was true for all tanks. This weakness is what the defenders hoped to exploit. And there were woods before and around Tula. German progress would mean little if the then-advancing tanks were taken out or damaged to the point they could no longer move. Elements of the Luftwaffe had flown over and not spotted anything, but the panzer drivers were not about to base their survival, their very lives, on such reports. As we have seen, the Germans believed that after their costly successes of the first phase of Operation Typhoon, the Russians were now without significant reserves, which was true and not true. As for what was in the immediate area, yes, many of the forces had been captured or destroyed. But Stalin had already ordered to the west several armies from the far east and wanted ten reserve armies created from the large pool of men throughout Russia. Again, they would not be well trained or equipped, but they would be added to the almost 321-kilometer or 200-mile defensive line between Army Group Center and the approaches to Moscow, directly west to the north and south. Guderian, seeking to keep his success going, had the 3rd Panzer Division attack Tula on October 30th. But as the men and machines under him were spread out, in dealing with the various possible attack vectors, given the wide terrain around him, only two infantry battalions and two tank battalions could take part in the assault. And waiting for them, Though some were freshly arrived, were the 156th NKVD Regiment, having three battalions, the Tula Workers' Regiment, four battalions, the 732nd AA Regiment. With them were 40 
85mm anti-aircraft gun, and lastly, the 32nd Tank Brigade. What's more, en route, was the 447th Corps' artillery regiment with their 152mm howitzers. Clearly, Stalin meant for Tula not to go the way of so many Soviet cities in the West. Besides, the Stavka knew that Tula would serve as a turning point if the attackers came to control it. The first attack on Tula of October 30th failed, as did the second attack that same day. The third attack, just 24 hours later, failed as well, and more Soviet defenders were coming into the area. It seemed that Guderian had missed his opportunity and would not be pivoting to the northeast anytime soon. Then life got even harder for Guderian. The 413th Soviet Rifle Division, when it arrived, camped itself just to the east of Tula, which blocked any attempt the Germans could make to surround and then move north from there. But to show Stalin's and the Stavka's desperation, the 413th recently arrived Rifle Division of some 12,000 men were made up of men from the Far East, mostly officers, and men from several military schools of just three months ago. They had been equipped, somewhat trained, and then sent west. Responsible for keeping Tula free from German possession was Major General Ermenkov. This duty was thrust upon him after the death of the 50th Army Commander General Petrov. Ermenkov's duty was to not only defend Tula, but equally important, keep the communications to its east and northeast open as only an organized defense had any chance of succeeding. And Ermenkov did not intend to go the way of Petrov. On October 30th, the same day the Germans attacked, Ermenkov and his staff moved, it was a coincidence, eight kilometers to the northeast. He did not ask permission before doing this. But as the area still had a commander, Stalin probably found little sense in killing him. As for Guderian, his men, at the end of October, weren't going any further until the ground froze. On the far left-hand side of the German attack on Moscow, as covered, the Germans were able to haltingly push forward and take the next series of Russian strongpoints, normally around cities where their defensive lines were connected. In short order, during late October, Mozhaisk, due west of the capital, along the main highway to Moscow, Major Zolovitz, south of Mozhaisk, and Kalga, even further south, would fall into German hands. That left Vokoskalamsk, due north of Mozhaisk, on the German left, Russian right. But that would be captured as well on October 27th. These strong points pretty much represented the center of the Moscow defensive line, and now it was shattered. The Germans could march or ride their way into the capital. Operation Typhoon had paid off and was successful. Except, one, the cost of German lives in getting there, and two, more importantly, all of Stalin's seemingly wasteful counterattacks since August, costing well over a million Soviet soldiers, had paid off. The ground was such that simple lines on a map that denoted roads were in reality covered in mud, 
the victorious German armies weren't going anywhere. Besides which, most German motorized formations needed some 1,000 to 1,200 tons of supplies each day. But now they were only receiving some 200 tons, and that was only because of the Luftwaffe. Between the mud and the lack of everything, winter clothes had not been issued yet. Operation Typhoon had ground to a halt. As we have seen, Hitler had decided to hit the two ends of the Soviet defensive line, then swing around them and encircle the entire capital. But Stalin got in his licks first, with his own counterattack on each end of the German attacking line. The Soviets had lost more men than they killed, but the Germans were delayed and some of their officers shaken up. For someone like Stalin, that was a fair trade. Last time, the Germans were readying to attack and capture Moscow, while the Russians, i.e. Stalin, attacked the right and left wings of the invading forces, hoping to forestall their coming onslaught. The Germans beat off the relatively modest attacks and readied to hopefully end this war, whereas the Russians had weakened themselves with their attack, but had caused a slight delay. Still, though a few thousand Russian lives had been exchanged for a handful of days, Stalin did make use of what he had gained. His defenses, as they were, were in place, but he was already thinking of the tomorrows before him and his country. The Germans would come on, perhaps piercing his line here or there, or here and there, but if his lines held, what then? Would the Germans be halted to then just wait for spring and come again after reinforcements were brought up? No, something had to give. Something had to change between now and then, if there was a then, when the Germans would come again. And that something was three new armies being assembled. The 1st, 10th, and 20th shock armies. The current defenses before Moscow would have to find a way to make do. But once the Germans were stopped, if they were stopped, then these new forming forces would come in and hopefully wreak havoc. As Zhukov's Stalin-ordered counterattack wound down, the ground beneath them froze. This is what Hitler had been waiting for. Box Army Group Center moved out on November 15th, the advance being called Operation Volga Reservoir. The Soviets guessed that about 233,000 enemy troops, with 1,880 guns, 1,300 tanks, and just under 1,000 fighters and bombers, made up the attacking forces. Opposing them would be, now that some of the reserves had been used to form the Kalinin Front to the northwest of Moscow, specifically the 30th Army, some 240,000 men with 1,250 guns, 500 tanks, and 650 aircraft. For the Soviets, these units were what made up their latest defensive line, from Kalinin all the way down to Tula. But because the Russians were just west of Moscow now, there was no room for retreat. Those days were gone. The men were expected to fight, using tactical sense, but to stand their ground. 
The days of giving way, allowing themselves to be surrounded and cut off, were over. To stress his sincerity in this, Zhukov had Colonel Kozlov executed, along with his political commissar, on October 22nd. On November 3rd, Lieutenant Colonel Gerasimov and his political officer were led out into a field and shot. They had both recently retreated without permission. The message was clear. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. For Reinhardt's 3rd Panzer Group, along with Strauss's 9th Army, attacking on the northern side of Stalin's new line, their initial job was to win control of the highway that ran from Kalinin to Klin to the capital. As the Germans to the north were closer to Moscow than Guderian's panzers to the south, they were the more immediate threat. And finally, the ground had frozen, so now the panzers and trucks were on the move. But their progress would obviously be faster along the paved road. Hence, their current mission. So, it's a wonder that at that point, along the highway, was where two Soviet armies linked up a generally recognized weak point of any defense. The 30th Army was to the north of Klin, the 16th Army to its south. And when the Germans attacked precisely here, Rokossovsky's 16th and Lulushenko's 30th Army were separated. Lulushenko's men were faring less well, and so retreated south, but set up a new line just north of the Volga Reservoir. Unfortunately for them, Strauss's Ninth Army stayed with them step for step. Thus, their retreat gained them nothing. Then, as most of the German Ninth Army took pains to keep the Russians tied down, other detachments secured bridgeheads over the Volga. Having accomplished what was expected of them for the first phase of this offensive, the Ninth Army went on the defensive. This straightforward drive held down the Russians in front of them who thought they were doing a good job. But the truth was, with Lilushenko's 30th Army tied down just north of the waterway, this allowed Reinhardt's Panzer Group to come in just below the Volga Reservoir and drive east. This was all achieved by November 19th. The weak Soviet link, as guessed by Halder, seemed to be the correct choice. When Zhukov got an update in what was happening just below the Volga, he knew that soon 
the northern approach to the capital would be open. So he sent in the 126th and 17th Cavalry Divisions, the 30th Army's 107th Motorized Division, and the 8th and 25th Tank Brigades. This latest German advance had to be checked, or their entire defensive posture would begin to unravel. And this blocking force had two spearheads to deal with. Some of the German armor was heading due east to get in above and then behind Moscow, while other panzers used the highway through Klin, who were heading southeast towards the capital, at a faster rate than those heading due east off-road. It was truly a horrifying situation for the Russians that grew worse as the two threatening advances spread themselves apart, but came ever closer to Moscow. Meanwhile, as this was unfolding over a series of days, to Reinhard's right, a little further south along Germany's attacking line, Hopner's 4th Panzer Group were advancing as well, but more slowly, having a harder time of it and losing more men along the way. In the way of the German 4th were, and they had departed from the recently captured Vukokolomsk, the 316th, the 18th, the 78th Soviet Rifle Divisions, along with Dovator's 50th and 53rd Cavalry Divisions. But knowing they needed armor if there was to be any counter-surge, also Major General Kutatko's 1st Guards Tank Brigade. As Reinhardt's men to the north had been able to split the two Soviet armies in front of them, Hopner's forces instead had run into a layered defense, hence their advance was more successfully held up. During the first three days, they had not even gone seven kilometers, or four miles. Beyond frustrated, Hopner then sent in all three of his corps on November 19th. Only then did they overwhelm the defenders in front of them and move on some 18 to 23 kilometers, or 11 to 14 miles, by the evening of November 20th. As the Germans were approaching Klin, this would have been the moment for Zhukov to throw in his reserves and hit the surging yet tired German forces, either pushing them back or killing or capturing many. But it was not to be, simply because Stalin had used them up in ordering his flanking attacks. The Germans came on, but they didn't always have things go their way. From November 15th to the 20th, the Soviets occasionally pushed forward when a break came their way, or out of sheer desperation. They still hid their artillery as best they could, at times surprising German panzers who believed an area to be clear. Yet the Germans did come on, absorbing the losses. The Soviets were doing the same thing, in fact had more men to replace their losses with, but their backs were coming ever closer to the outskirts of the capital. So both sides bled each other, but the attackers moved closer to Klin. During this intense, brutal, now personal fighting, the regiments of the attackers and the defenders were reduced to the size of companies, each one having something like 150 men in each one. But again, German professionalism paid off because the ranking officers could feel the nearness of Moscow and order their men on. By the afternoon of November 23rd, 
Klin fell into Reinhardt's soldiers, albeit bloody, hands. Worse, Hopner's men of the 2nd Panzer Division, though paying a higher price, captured Solnek-Nogorsk, about 25 kilometers or 15 miles southeast of Klin, thus directly in between Klin and Moscow. For the umpteenth time, the way ahead seemed open to the leading German forces. Moscow to the southeast was simply a matter of moving on. The Moscow-Volga Canal due east, the same. For surely Stalin did not have even more men to place before them, not in any serious numbers, with any significant weaponry. But now, well within their own established routine, the Stavka had the remains of Rokossovsky's 16th Army that had started out just south of Klin and in front of the Istra Reservoir, now move behind it and a bit to the southeast to station themselves near the town of Istra itself. There they were to replace Lieutenant General of Artillery Gorovno's 5th Army as it had been ordered to position itself further south to be stationed due west of the capital to deal with the coming threat from there but more on that later. Then the Stavka thought they were being clever, as they tried to cover Rokossovsky's withdrawal with a thrown-together force of anti-aircraft gunners and engineer troops, the idea being to bluff the Germans into thinking this part of the line was just as strong as any other part. But what the Russian high command did not know was exactly how ambitious the Germans were on this current drive. Reinhardt's panzers had planned on moving into this area anyway, and when they saw the reduction in Soviet defenders, they pounced. The thrown-together force was pushed aside as the panzers moved out due east from Klin, and the left flank of Lulushenko's 30th Army was pushed further south. The 3rd Panzer Group raced through this hole. This pouring through transpired on the evening of November 28th, but the Germans, having no one in front of them, kept going. Later that same night, the advanced units of the 14th Motorized and the 7th Panzer Divisions had made their way to the western bank of the Moscow-Volga Canal, due north of the capital itself. After a short rest, the units of the 7th Panzer were then able to grab several bridgeheads, on the western side. They were now some 35 kilometers, or 21 miles, from the Kremlin itself. Making the situation worse for the defenders, on the right flank of Reinhardt's advance, Hopner's 4th Panzer Group dashed east as well, through Rokossovsky's men, as they had not had time to prepare a proper defense, to take Solnek Nogorovsk, as mentioned, just above the Istra Reservoir, and Istra itself. But, like Reinhardt's men and Panzers, they did not stop there, their orders being to go as far as they could, before the heavy snows came. Their goal was simply to end this war, this year, to make good on all they had lost and suffered, to get here. So, the Panzers moved on. By November 30th, Hopner's 2nd Panzer Division had not only captured Karyznia Poliana, just some scant miles northwest of Moscow, but those German forces were now 
within artillery range of the capital. Their officers sending back the message that they could see the spires of Moscow through their field glasses. The true attack to end this could begin. As the other units of Hopner's 41st and 40th Motorized Corps, along with Reinhardt's 5th Army Corps, closed in on what was left of Rokozovsky's and Gorovno's defensive line, just northwest of the outskirts of the capital, the end truly seemed to be in the making for Army Group Center and Moscow. During this enclosing of German forces to the northwest of the city, Roskazowski's 16th Army had been given specific orders not to fall back, to stop the Germans there or die in the attempt. But this order was just as unrealistic as some of Hitler's orders that one of the train lines south of Moscow captured. It was ridiculous because the men weren't even there yet. Still, the staff could see what was happening to their northwest, as word did not take long to reach them now the front only being some dozen miles away. So Stalin stepped in and made the decision to release some of his reserve forces. General Kuznetsov's 1st Shock Army, along with General Luzizkov's 20th Army, were activated and ordered by Zhukov to hold the line at the Moscow-Volga Canal. These two forces were put in between the 30th and 16th armies, as the gap in between them had allowed the Germans to come east as far as they had. Their orders from Zhukov, whom everyone took seriously now, was simple. Throw the Germans back across the canal. As for the situation to the south of the Soviet defensive line, things were worsening there for the Russians as well, but at a slower pace. By November 18th, after realizing his panzers were not going to be driving into Tula, Guderian had them swing south of the city. The idea was to come up behind Tula and cut it off, neutralizing it as a part of the defensive line. The Soviets had pushed back his men and tanks a few days before this, causing some panic, but Guderian had recovered, gathered his remaining operable tanks into one brigade, under the command of Colonel Eberbach of the much-reduced 4th Panzer Division. Eberbach's orders were to hit the defenders where the western and southwestern fronts joined. This worked as Eberbach was able to move forward. Swinging wide south of Tula on November 18th, the 42nd Motorized Corps, working with Eberbach, took Epiphen, some 20 miles or 32 kilometers southeast of Tula. Meanwhile, the 24th Corps forced its way into nearby Dedilovo. Now that the corner had been turned, but certainly not captured, the idea was to head for Venev, a bit further north, and get on the Moscow Road. During this, other German forces, mostly without their own panzers, captured other towns to the right and left of Eberbach's now northeastern thrust. Yet not all was perfect for Guderian's lone 4th Panzer Brigade. That was down to its last 50 tanks. Fresh intelligence made its way to Guderian that Siberian troops were coming ever closer to the 29th Motorized Division, which protected Eberbach's right or eastern flank. 
What's more, the temperatures continued to drop. Yes, the mud was hard now, but getting supplies to Eberbach meant that the needed resources also had to swing wide of Tula, and then head north. It was precarious, to say the least, as well as time-consuming. In short, Eberbach, who represented, really, the only advances being made in the South, was not getting enough of what he needed, was running out of tanks, and still did not have adequate winter clothing for his men. Eberbach's thrust was slowing down all on its own, due to supplies, lack of offensive weaponry, and the cold. But there would soon be other reasons. Though the situation to the immediate northwest of the capital was precarious, Zhukov nevertheless kept up with the situation to the south. Something had to be done about the panzers now behind and to the northeast of Tula. Zhukov ordered Bevlov, the commander of the 2nd Cavalry Corps, to right the situation, no matter what. And though their reserve forces were dwindling fast, Zhukov and Stalin sent to Bevlov part of the 112th Tank Division, the 35th and 127th Tank Battalions, part of an anti-aircraft gunner unit, a combat engineer regiment, a unit of the recently formed Katyusha multiple rocket launchers, and some instructors and their students from several military schools. As for learning the trade of war, there was no time like the present. Renamed the 1st Guards Cavalry Corps, this cobbled-together force was ordered south of Moscow to engage the oncoming panzers at Kishara, which is almost halfway between Tula and the capital, and a bit to the east, which shows how far the Germans had come. And though the Germans were coming, they were spread out, trying to capture or stabilize as much territory as they could south of Moscow. But because they were scattered, the 1st Guards Cavalry Corps easily managed to get close to the German spearhead, practically undetected. So, when they attacked on November 27th, the Germans were unprepared, probably more focused on the cold and their next supply delivery. Really, how many more Soviet forces could there be? And due to the surprise of their counterattack, the 1st Guards managed to halt and push back the 17th Panzer Division. Well, what was left of it? This tactical victory not only saved Moscow from a southern threat, but helped with the almost encircled Tula to the southwest. Now Stalin, Zhukov, and the Stavka could redirect their attention to the German forces directly northwest of their current location. Footnote. As October gave way to November, and more units were coming to help defend the approaches to Moscow, the Germans would find that more and more Soviet tank brigades had more T-34s in them. A full brigade had 61 tanks, and before November, maybe 22 of those 61 were T-34s. But as more reinforcements came, or far-off tank teams came west, they were put into more T-34s. So the Germans would find themselves facing at least 29 T-34s now in each brigade. 
But what difference could seven more T-34s mean? This observation, when realized by the attackers, caused dread for the German infantry and mobile units, for they already knew that their 3.7-centimeter anti-tank guns were all but worthless against the T-34s. In fact, in more than a few cases, these 3.7-centimeter crews were simply run over by angry or panicked Soviet tank crews. The 5-centimeter guns were only slightly better, having to hope for a lucky shot. It was the 8.8-centimeter anti-aircraft guns that were the most effective. But besides having too few of them, as Lieutenant Enric Bunk wrote in his diary, they are as difficult to hide as a barn door in this terrain. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.